Hey, you're listening to the Achillion Live podcast. I'm Amir, the founder of Achillion, and your host. Each episode, I'll be talking to experts and innovators about cybersecurity, privacy, and startups. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. I'm joined today by a special guest, Fausto Lindeborg, the co-founder and CEO of SecBurris. Fausto has over 12 years of experience in cybersecurity and two cybersecurity patents. Before founding and becoming CEO at SecBurs, he co-founded and was SVP of security at ZenEdge. The knowledge and passion expertise that led him to co-found two startups began as employee number 14 at Prolexic, which was later acquired by Akamai. Fausto is a cybersecurity expert who has an excitement for helping CISOs and information security humans to understand how to take back control of securing the cloud. SecBurs is an adaptable security platform for your dynamic cloud. They manage your cloud security, development, compliance, operations, financial strategy with cloud governance platform that includes embedded Kappa and Carta framework. SecBurris enables you to assess, respond, adapt, and prevent cloud risk at enterprise scale. Thank you so much, Fausto, for joining me. It's uh, great to talk. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So you've been in, in the cybersecurity industry for a while, but you've also been kind of involved at both the startup level and, you know, the large organizational level. I'd love to hear kind of how you got interested and how you got started in cybersecurity and kind of how the path took you here. Yeah, my story starts early age, 14, 15, really like computers. And funny enough, my dad walks into my room when I'm studying and he goes, you should do some cybersecurity. I read in the New York Times, that's the future. And within one week, I had my first gig, 16, just in this really started tinkering with, with cybersecurity. And I've been super fortunate to be uh, part of multiple startups that have been successful the way to hundreds of millions of dollars in exits. And through my journey, I've met some amazing people, but most important, I think going now 15, 16 years is continue to see challenges at the enterprise level. And I'm very passionate of just solving these problems and, and fighting fighting attackers that are trying to get your data. So um, super excited to be part of the industry. That's pretty amazing. You know, this is what happens when we listen to our parents. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so did you grow up in Miami area? I know that's where you are now. Yeah, I've raised here. I've been here for some 20 plus years, um, originally from the Dominican Republic, but parents came when I was... 14 and and we've been here for some time and so you know Sigberus was built in Miami source and now we do have employees all over the United States but kind of the headquarters started here in my hometown that's amazing and everybody's seen all the cool stuff that's happening in Miami right now it's really awesome I'm curious because there's not many people that have seen both sides of like the startup side you know startups mm-hmm. are hard but cybersecurity startups are kind of hard for their own reasons. It's a little bit even different than other startups. There's industries where like you're welcomed with open arms when you're a startup, but you know, cybersecurity is not necessarily that way. I'm curious what actually drew you to, to starting your own company and being involved with such early stage companies more than once. 
Yeah, so initially it was getting my learning about startups in 2007 and 8 and then cybersecurity was also new back then. I was super lucky to to start in a startup that it was cybersecurity and we did a, it was a complete success story. I mean, we protected the top banks of the world. I'm talking about wow. my my team and I probably fought over 50,000 cyber attacks. And the company en- ended up growing and, you know, we fought Anonymous and, and all these different activism groups. And I saw such a success in, in the space and start of that, you know, I got the bug pretty early and I was like, oh, you know, this is not that hard, you know, little did I know as I go through my journey that is, is difficult, as you mentioned. And then took that experience and parlayed it to another startup I founded in LA with some really amazing, amazing people called Zenich. And we went ahead and, and looked at the problem from a whole nother angle. We said, there's no expertise in securing your traffic. How do we build something completely automated? And successfully, we've built that into an amazing company that was acquired by Oracle only a few years within the venture. And while I was sitting there, I had a a giant problem which I saw throughout my career, which is companies are going through a digital transformation. And I had the role of securing and governing all of our different cloud environments and data. And I'm sitting on my desk and I said, look, this this seems impossible to do with the current products in the market. This seems impossible to do with the skills that gap this market has, and it, it, especially with a with lack of resources. And the pain to me of the problem that I had was bigger than anything I've ever experienced. And to me was not only like, let's create another startup and, and here and make some money or whatever. To me was how can we solve this problem for the whole world? And that pain was cruciating pain. And we're talking about four and a half years ago, I had this problem. And as I sit on my desk, I get up from my desk, I go directly to the founder and CEO of this company. And I go, look, today is my last day here. <laughs> what, wow. what, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, because this pain that I'm going through, either I completely quit cybersecurity as an industry or I solve this problem. But there's no way I can work in this industry with this giant problem. And that's how actually I started Secpares and, and, and we're in this journey to solve that, that problem. That's amazing because, you know, that problem isn't even a cybersecurity problem per se. You know, every company has that problem managing distributed, you know, cloud yeah. architectures and stuff like that. I'm guessing, were you using like, you know, one of the major cloud services or was that on-premise or was it a mix? We had all of them. We had hybrid, on-prem, multi-public cloud and to me, it was, as you said, it's not just cybersecurity, but it's the hygiene. It's how do we go back to the basics, you know? And we can sit here and talk about AI and machine learning all day. But for us, and my philosophy is if you do most of the things right, you can reduce your chances of getting breached by at least 80, 90%, right? But how do you go to the basics in such a complex world? And that is the difficulty. I totally agree with you. Just taking like a simple example, I remember like 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, when I first started using like AWS for like the very first time, just started playing around with it. I remember thinking like, you're an engineer, you have some intuition around like what you're doing and what you think the the, the system is doing. But like, 
especially at that time when it was like more new, there was no way to intuitively know what is open on this S3 bucket. I I don't even know where to start to understand like who can access it, which server, can anybody access it? Like you just don't know. And it's not intuitive. It's not meant to be intuitive. You need something and you need to have some policies and understanding of like, how are you going to approach this? A hundred percent. I mean, I agree with you there. And and everything starts with the philosophy, right? We believe that this problem is not a developer's problem. Like they need to build infrastructure. And you mentioned it, you know, one thing is understanding the cloud, which is very complex. And the other thing is layering the security responsibility you have of securing your cloud resources. And that responsibility should not be put on the hands of the developer or DevOps in today's world, right? Why? Because they need to build infrastructure at a very fast scale and speed. How can you put such a giant responsibility on the enterprise on, on the single individual, right? And for us, I think you mentioned it, we have a policy first approach driven by the business. And that's the way we see the world, which is how can we build something from a top down and allow the developers to do what they do best, which is build cloud, regardless of how misconfigured it is. If we have the policies in place, then they can just build whatever they need to build to grow. Yeah, a little bit goes a long way in in this kind of stuff. So I'm curious, this kind of newer or emerging role of like cloud architect, like, is that who's responsible for this? Who owns this problem at an organization? You nailed it right on the head, which is the cloud architect. He's coming on board and he needs to understand all of the different requirements, security requirements you know, development requirements, uh, business requirements, compliance requirements. How do you gather all of these different requirements and then build a roadmap to go cloud native, meeting all of the requirements in a cost effective and fast way? How do you do that? You know, and it's almost impossible. And that was my role when I first thought about Sigveras. You know, I was a cloud security architect as well. And I needed to meet all these checkboxes and scale and be secure and guarantee truly security through scale and in the velocity. And so the cloud security architect, which is a very, very, very hard role to fill in today's world, is the person responsible to governing your cloud as you scale in a very fast way. And that is the challenge here, which is speed and security. How can we accomplish that? Yeah, totally. And I've seen, you know, from my experience, you know, there's people who, let's say, understand the technology well, Uh, and the risks and all of that. And then, you know, there's people that are good at managing teams, but I find one of the things that's most difficult is how do you represent what's going on? Like, what are the KPIs? What are the explanation of what's going on to the CEO, to the board, to the people that are non-technical that have to understand what's emerging and where money needs to be spent? Like, how do you do that part of it? Like, what's the best advice for someone that needs to explain what's going on? Yeah, so, you know, for us, is everything is it's a multi-layer approach to solving that problem, right? And, and we call that kind of just risk communication. How do you communicate risk is one thing. And how do you assess risk is something completely different. And everything starts at understanding your, your context of risk. Like, what is risk to you? What kind of data do you have? How do you classify your data? How do you classify your incidents in that data, right? So we work with enterprises to truly help them discover this based on the maturity level 
multiple organizations have different ways of doing this. But you know, for us, not only we provide software, but we provide a consultative approach to, to the problem where we help enterprises discover that. Through automation, it's possible. You know, and we do have technology that can help you assess risk in real time, according to your data classification, according to your environment, and also to communicate risk. But, you know, risk is such a vague umbrella word. You know, it comes down to the impact of something not being available, the impact of something uh, of a data breach, and then just focusing on those gems, on the gold, like where is the crown jewels, and then build policy around crown jewels. So if you could speak directly to every like CISO, enterprise CISO in America or the world, you know, what is it you think that they need to hear right now? Like, what's the one thing that, that people need to reapproach? Well, to be completely honest, the first thing they need to hear is we know there's a problem. We acknowledge your frustration, but the solution is to embrace innovation, you know, embrace innovation around the cloud native foundation. There's multiple teams out there building amazing technology to help solve this problem. And it's to embrace innovation, to go to the startups and be able to give them opportunity to bring a solution, a one-of-a-kind solution, you know. CISOs don't have to go to the legacy companies and the legacy brands, you know. I think CISOs should be open for innovation, open to innovate with new companies, and upfront face the challenges and be able to tackle challenge one at a time. So to be completely honest, regardless of the solution, I think the big thing is CISOs, there's a problem, embrace innovation as part of the solution. And this is my number one advice. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's definitely encouraged and needs to happen. I'm curious, like the idea of, like you mentioned, like policy approach or like policy first approach. What's the difference between a policy first approach versus like a developer first approach? And why does that matter? Why is one better than the other? And I think one big thing is to, to look back and understand, you know, who is in charge of the problem. And we believe that the person responsible to solve the problem is the business. And from a business perspective, and this can be in the form of a CISO, cloud security architect, information security leader, they think policy first. They think that we have this requirement, we have this policy, and we can push it down to the developers. Now, that's called the top-down approach. If you implement a bottom-up approach, which starts at the developer, the developer doesn't have the right business context to make a decision. He doesn't know this data is more important than this other data. He doesn't understand the likelihood of that data being impacted. That's the first problem. So for the last 25 years, we've been stuffing our developers with more tools, more tools, more tools, more tools. Now, where we are, we are with developers having 20 tools and blocking them from actually working. Yeah. So we believe the developers and DevOps, they have a place in the security kind of pipeline, but they're not the first ones to actually build the strategy. I think they're the recipients of the policy. And when they have something to fix, they fix it. But it doesn't start with the developers. It starts with the policy. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I've talked to a lot of people about is that as a developer, there's not much necessarily education or experience that comes with like writing secure code. And so um, a lot of people that I talk to, especially at large organizations, and you have many resources or teams, like 
you don't know which developers are good at writing secure code. Yeah. You know, you have to have processes for making sure the code is secure as it's contributed and all of that. So it can't be at the bottom, right? It can't be because yeah. because you don't even know who has the capability. Not necessarily everyone needs to even have that level of granularity and experience. Correct. Look at look at this example, Amir. We we now live in the world where if you want to build a mobile or an, an application, you can hire one team, two external, third, you know, four or five different development teams, and right. these teams are not even part of your company. They can be contractors, yeah. and right. empowering the the technology that these teams are using is cloud because it's the only thing that can give them the velocity. Now, yeah. how can you put the security strategy on a contractor developer team that doesn't understand your cloud security strategy, right? That's a big problem. Well, I was talking to a CISO last week and they came to us and said, look, we have 1,600 developers building code every single day. Most of them are not part of our company. That company yeah. cannot embrace a dev first approach to security because they're going to be in and out of developers. So for them... They came to us saying the only thing that works is a policy-first approach. Yeah, and they if they tried to do it the other way, they lock themselves into something that's, you know, yeah. not dynamic or adaptable. You know, I was thinking about this; it just popped in my head a few days ago. I wasn't around when it was like on-prem only time period of technology, but like, you know, I would imagine if today there was no cloud and it was on-prem servers only. Mm-hmm. If you were sitting there and saying like, okay, we're going to have to deploy $2 million. This is going to be a long-term commitment. We're going to have to do X, Y, and Z. And you sit there and think about it and have to commit to that. You have like a chance to kind of set these policies and think about them at a more serious level versus like with this, you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants. You have this benefit of like, you can change anything you can like move to a different provider if you want to like at a reasonable seat so yeah. part of the ability to make those changes at high speed makes it hard to like sit down and say stop everything for a second let's make an actual well thought out policy yeah you're 100% i tell you i have experience of actually going to the data center sleeping overnight and racking piece by piece and wire them right and wow. I remember the first thing you set up is a firewall And once you set up the firewall, you set up your VPN rules. And once you set up your VPN rules, you set up who can come in. Then from the firewall, you put your router, your core, your edge, your servers. Like it's literally layer by layer in a more vertical way. Now, a developer cannot walk into the data center and unplug the firewall. It's impossible. Like that would never happen. They wouldn't even have access to the data center. But when you move to the cloud and everything is horizontal, then everyone has access to your firewall. One person, engineer, and he could be great, sitting from their GitHub repo where they manage infrastructure as code, one line of code takes down the entire firewall. Yeah. And that's the problem we live with today. And there's no time. There's no time to, to stop everyone from building, as you mentioned. Yeah. So, you know, our approach is how can we let them continue to go fast and do it from a whole other perspective? And really, the innovation started there. Yeah, that's an incredible point because honestly, like my thing that I keep repeating and, and my company's like kind of purpose is that like I've seen this shift from the initial attack vector being the system to being the individual. And like it's exactly for what you're talking about. 
if you get one engineer's like credentials and can like log into the server, you don't need to attack the system. You don't need to take over attack directly. You just take that person's computer or email or whatever it happens to be. 100%. I read an article yesterday said only 0.4% of the attacks are by zero day exploits. Like these yeah. attackers, they're not being very sophisticated or Hollywood, like I like to call them. They find exactly. the mistakes. They find the mistakes and they exploit the mistakes. Yeah. I mean, look, it's at the end of the day, that's a business. They approach it as a business. They spend their time on what works and, and what's worth their time, not the stuff that, you know, <laughs> looks like the matrix and like doing like, yeah. you know, Hollywood stuff. That's really interesting. So talking about like the individual teams, there's a lot of talk about how hard it is to hire good people, you know, so many opportunities to get started entry level in cybersecurity, DevOps, SecOps, all of that. You know, what do you think is going on with like the employment and recruiting world? Like why are the teams burnt out? You know, all of that. What, what's going on on the human resource side? You're talking from experience on security teams. They're fatigued. They're alert fatigue. They're tools fatigue. They're decision-making fatigue, right? You start building the security teams and then you plug 25 tools and the tools are generating so many alerts, they're not looking at them anymore, right? And, and that was one of the big things why, why we went with policy first, because we believe that if the policy is approved by the business and can traverse through data, and is accurate enough that generates a violation that you don't want that violation to be generated, that alert is not a false positive, right? What we're really trying to do here is to eliminate false positives. Like go and be very accurate on the results by eliminating false positives and not burn these teams out. Right. And the answer is not more people and more tools. The answer is to start looking at this completely different one. And, and from a research perspective is to make sure that we do have individuals, you know, that are coming to the organization that also embrace innovation and they can be agnostic to anything to understand how to evaluate tools and how to look at these tools. And there's a lot of challenges CISOs are traversing today. And I know I don't envy to be in their spot today. And, you know, I know their struggles every single day and they don't go to sleep knowing that any day it could happen. It could happen any day, you know, and that it's something that I feel high amount of empathy for, you know, and that honestly, that's why I fight every single day to bring a solution to them that helps them sleep very well. That's awesome. And that kind of leads me to kind of the next question. Can you tell us what Secverse does and what does your company do and provide? And along the way, there's a lot of acronyms that people might not know. Explain what is CSPM, what is Kappa, and what is Carta? Oh, yeah. The acronyms are awesome. I mean, I, I love them. But, <laughs> you know, I think the biggest thing is to understand companies are going through this digital transformation, which means they're going cloud. That's what it means. They're going cloud and they're going fast. And in order to to build confidence in your cloud, you need to understand what is your cloud security posture? How risky is my cloud configuration today? Yeah. And cloud security posture management or stands for CSPM is a market that started a few years ago by Neil McDonald. And Neil McDonald from Garner talks about how every organization must have a CSPM as part of their strategy, right? 
But right within that, he also talks about CARTA. And CARTA is, stands for Continuous Adaptive Risk and Trust Assessment, which is how can we assess your infrastructure and your CICD pipeline and be able to assign a risk level to every single violation, right? So now we have understanding your risk posture, your cloud security posture, CSPM, with a CARTA approach that allows you to every single violation has a risk associated with it. And that is a methodology. Also, that was a 10 year old methodology on CARTA. And then the third approach is CAPA, which is continuous adaptive policy assessment. And that is our approach to solve the problem, which is now through a policy assessment and that policy carrying out a risk metric or weight by the customer, we can then deliver cloud security posture for the customers at scale. So putting it all together, what we build is a platform extensible enough to take any company's cloud security strategy, regardless of the maturity level, regardless of the technology they're running, regardless of any integrations they have. All of our enterprises come to us with a very unique cloud security strategy. And it doesn't matter how unique or customized or tailored that is, we actually build the platform where their strategy can be deployed using our solution. So for us, we spent many, many years working on this. We now are on our year number five of working, of building our technology. So we can do any use case, any risk level, any cloud. And it's amazing to see how every enterprise has their own strategy and they can actually run it using the Sigboros platform. That's really awesome. Can you give me like a general example type element that would be in a policy and then how a violation of that might occur as a threat? Yeah, so I'll walk you through one of our most recent examples with one of our big customers, which is they're moving 1,200 applications into three different cloud environments, three different cloud types. They're going Azure, GCP, and AWS. And they only have one security team and one cloud security architect. How do you now have one cloud security architect to, to protect all those applications. And they wanted to build a strategy where they can build policies for specific applications, regardless of where they live. And once you have a violation, that policy and that violation, we can read the application owner and contact the application owner to solve oh, the wow. problem. So we did it, you know, we build a policy and I'll give you a simple policy, which is make sure this DynamoDB, which is a database in AWS is encrypted, right? And our policy is simple with one statement, ensure DynamoDB is encrypted at rest. But then once we grab all the DynamoDBs that are not encrypted, we then looked at the, what, what environment they were on. Then we can make decisions. Is this on the production environment? If yes, now that's a true violation with high risk because now we're wow. reading the risk from that context. Now that we have the violation singled out, and we also know the application and we also know the risk, we now make another decision. And now we start looking at the data inside and the tagging. And within that data, which is all built in today's cloud environments through tagging and labels, we now can see the technical owner of that application and who actually pushed that to the cloud. So we do some sort of forensic analysis immediately. So we grab the application owner, go to their identity management system, identify his email and email that person 
And that person receives an email and a Slack saying, we know you created a Dynamo database on this date and that violates policy X. And you need to fix this right now. So we were able to track all the way from a policy, traverse the cloud and the technology stack, and also create a process to identify who broke it and then have a true medium time to recover from the point of detection. That's pretty incredible. I mean, the, the amount of time that that saves, I can just think about like how many steps it would take like a person to do that is, you know, hours. Yeah. From the minute you realize that it would take hours. Yeah, imagine that times 1,000 changes going into the cloud per single day. Like we have customers that we have 1,000 different things that we're touching on a single day. So we're talking about millions of data endpoints, millions of decisions happening, and humans cannot just do it. So yeah. for us, we found a way of starting at the policy and all the way ending at the developer. And that is kind of what we go with policy first versus a dev first approach. That's pretty cool. That's really awesome. I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on kind of all the ransomware? Obviously it's a huge problem. It's yeah. been a huge problem for a long time, but it's becoming more and more in the news. What do companies have to think about? I think in perfect timing, I think if we talk a little bit about the colonial hack and I've, yeah. I've done my reading a little bit on that, the little bit that I know, we still don't know how they got in, but we do know that they were able to really log the data for ransom and force them to pay the $4.4 million. And even though they didn't do anything with the in key to unencrypted, they still restore for backup. For, for CISOs and enterprises, they need to go back to the basics. Like, was that data encrypted? It's the first thing they needed to look at. And you can do that with policy, you know? Was, is yeah. this data type encrypted? You know, the second thing they needed to look at is who has access to the data? Can we actually get a list of only the people that have access to the data, list privilege, access control, is enforced? We can also do that through policy. But let's say those security policies are out the door. What is your backup and recovery policy? Can you have a one minute recovery point object, right? Is yeah. that possible? So it goes back to policy. It goes back to strategy and ransomwares are not going to stop. They're not. It's a large business. One of the things I saw, they tracked the wallet that, that collected this, this ransom and that wallet has gotten paid north of $30 million. That Insane. wallet only, right? So Colonial Hack is the one we know. But every yeah. single day, there's a ransomware out there that we don't know. And yeah. for the attackers, it's very simple to do that. It's one click and the data is encrypted and the key is somewhere else. So the yeah. only thing that companies can do is understand where is your data, understand who has access to that data, understand your backup and recovery. I don't want to keep repeating it, but... Yeah. Do you have a poli a continuous policy assessment approach to your data set? And if the answer Ab is no, they're behind. Absolutely. And I mean, the part about like backup and then actually recovery and then, you know, having a probably a policy to check the backups to make sure yes. they're working on a regular basis. I follow the cyber insurance world really closely. You know, it's really closely related to what, what I do. So I see what's happening. A lot of insurance companies, cyber insurance companies, just in the last year and last few months, they're adding a question on the initial application 
asking how long will it take you to recover your backups? Like days, like how many days, how many hours? They yeah. want to know that because that impacts the damage that's going to be caused. If it's going to take you 15 days to recover your systems and your data, that's not going to fly. Yeah, and it gets harder as we go through a cloud world. In the next 10, yeah. 15 years, everything is going cloud. So if we don't tackle it now, we are yeah. in worse, in, in more serious problem than we are today. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I had David uh, Linthicum on my previous episode, and he's chief cloud strategy officer at Deloitte. And he talked a lot about governance for edge devices and IoT devices and how, you know, it's obviously really hard to do. I mean, you have issues like physical security. Someone can just take yeah. the device and walk away. How does that figure into cloud posture management? I mean, that's becoming more, and you know, certain companies, their whole applications are based on those edge devices. Yeah, I mean, everything depends on the way you're building either edge or, or your IoT devices, right? In the example of going cloud, where are you storing that global configuration that if affected, then you affect all of your IoT devices, right? And it's going back to the data, to the source code, you know, to the source code of the application, to the source code of your configuration. And it goes back to, to something you probably mentioned is governing the code, governing the code continuously, you know, through, through policy as code, the kind of technology we use. And for us, you know, we tell our customers, what are you using to build applications? Like, let's discover that together. You know, we have enterprises that don't know what the developers are using right. to actually get this to market, you know? Right. So every company, every enterprise, every single industry it has their only unique use cases of how they're using their cloud and how they're using the services and what data means different. It has to be anything that they use to protect. It has to be adaptable, scalable. That's what it is. It has to be adaptable because every single company is completely different. We're not longer in the world of everyone is running the same Cisco or Juniper router and the same firewall and the same Dell servers. Unfortunately, yeah. every company is now a software company and those software companies are built with different technology stacks. And that's the yeah, challenge. totally. Switching gears from like enterprise level companies to, to small businesses or, or startups. So if you're a startup, maybe you're like one developer by yourself or, or a couple of people, you know, you just spun up your first EC2 instance or, or whatever cloud it is. What, what does that person need to be doing? Like, what kind of stuff do you need to worry about at the beta level of your software? Is this only something like big companies need to worry about? Or does like even no. a small company need to think about this? No, every company, especially if they're building a product to a highly regulated industry, must think about security. And I'll tell you why. The startups today, they need to be more conscious than ever about security because the procurement processes and the vendor due diligence that enterprises are having are very rigid and can take startups a long time to go through, right? So from a startup Absolutely. perspective, they need to understand when I go to market and I start selling my awesome software to a, a Goldman Sachs, for example, you know, how can I make sure that my security is very well done so I can go through a successful vendor due diligence, right? And they need to think that way at scale. Now, when it comes to solutions, because their environments are still small, is the best way to start doing things right. 
You know? Absolutely. And I think my true advice for small companies and startups that need to have their security is make sure you don't spread yourself too thin on the technology stack. Don't pick something in AWS and go to GCP and pick three things for CICD pipeline. Pick as few as possible solutions that you want to handle and, and actually start using the cloud native tools. You know, AWS and Azure, they have amazing really tools inside of their cloud providers that can help you get going, right? And study those and, and be able to manage a small cloud with just doing things right and use the, the tools that it comes with the clouds, right? You know, a policy first approach for us only works when it's a medium to large enterprise with multi-cloud, multiple developers, and, and that's the solution to that problem. But for startups yeah. and small companies, there's a lot of really good tools already come with your technology stack, and you can use it today and, th- and start thinking about the future as you scale. But things can yeah, be done I, right. I agree with you. I mean, there's a lot of stuff already that you can just use off the shelf. I think the worst thing to do is when people just try to invent their own uh, way of like, yeah. you know, here's how I'm going to do this. Here's how I'm going to roll that. But as you said, they already come with stuff. And I think a little bit goes a long way. If you just have it in your mind as you're doing it, in the long run, you're in better shape. What do you think some of like the big potential opportunities are or areas for startups to be involved in, in cybersecurity governance and compliance? Like what's something that you're watching that you think is going to develop in the next few years? The biggest thing that customers are struggling in today's world, and I tell you there's multiple areas here of growth, and this is a good gem for whoever's listening to this, <laughs> data classification, understanding what data you're running and where you're running that data is very important. And that's a huge area of concern of the enterprise customers and all the customers is understanding the type of data. And data is now your crown jewels. And that's an area there where we need to pay a lot of attention to when it comes to compliance, governance, security, is classifying the data, organizing your data, tagging your data, because there's a lot of data that comes into play when you talk about risk, when you talk about automation, like everything is around the context. That's one area. The second area is there's a lot of opportunity in cloud security architect education. You know, we don't talk about this much, but there will be three something, you know, millions of, of positions open and no one is educating security engineers to become cloud security architects. And the definition of an architect is 10, 15 years of experience on anything, right? When it comes to the engineering world. But when you look at cloud, cloud has only been around for 10, 15 years at best, right? So companies are missing this big piece and we need to, there's a huge opportunity in pure education, pure education, and we're seeing it today. And how do you transform legacy information security leaders to cloud security architects in today's world? And the third one is automation. Automation is going to run everything. Automation, 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 and more programmatic robotic automation is going to do it. Is how do you build something that can be self-heal, self-completed, um, and self-remediated? It's a big area of growth. Yeah, I agree. That those are some amazing ideas. I never even thought about the cloud security architect one. I mean, that's completely necessary. Where else are you going to get that training unless you've actually been around it? Yeah. I have. One question for you around cybersecurity startups. As I mentioned, we both know startups are hard, but cybersecurity is hard too. 
What are some of the areas of unique challenges that are in the cybersecurity space? I, th I think sales is kind of one of them, like how you do it and how you approach it. What's your advice for like cybersecurity startups? Don't sound the same as everyone else. There's noise. Before sales, it's about positioning. It's about your product and how that product is positioning the market. I think the times of selling by fear are done. It's not about fear anymore. It's not about if you don't buy this, you're going to get hacked. Because now we're seeing that the buyer is very smart and the buyer doesn't get fossil by AI and machine learning buzzwords. So it's not about that anymore. <laughs> it's not about fear. It's not about AI. It's not about buzzwords. It's about, do you understand the problem I'm having? And do you have a solution that can help me solve that problem? And be able to articulate the solution to the customer's problem and the pain and be able to talk to the right audience comes in your positioning and what story are you actually telling? And the advice for startups going into a cybersecurity market, which is hard, is don't start with you know the AI and the machine learning and the accuracy 99999%. That's very like 2013. You know? <laughs> That's our, awesome. And I think our, our buyers deserve deserve honesty. They deserve transparency. They deserve the fact that we have a, a team here that's trying to help you. This is the problem we identify, you know, for other problems, you're going to need other solutions and be more of a resource than actually a salesman. Yeah. And that's the culture that we have on our company, which is we're here to help. We are an extension of your team. We can try to solve some of these problems. We cannot solve all of the problems, but we are here because we understand your frustration. And I think that's going to be the difference between the new upcoming cybersecurity startups and the legacy startups. It's about a different story, a different tone, and understanding that it's not longer a solution with nice, cool maps and charts. Just get to the problem, solve one problem at a time, and move forward knowing that you're making the world a better place by solving some of this problem, not only selling a solution that's going to be in there for six months and they're going to throw it out. I think that's incredible advice, especially the point where like you look at who's, you know, quote, successful or been in the market for a long time and you want to use the language they're using. You think that's the best way to do it because you're new to market, but you're absolutely right. You have to kind of generate your own reason for existing and solution and explaining all of that. So I think that's good advice. And I think the second part is you nailed it because it's not just about making the sale. That's not the finish line. Anyone who's had more than one startup knows that that's the starting line. That's like after you you got in and now the software is up and working, like you got to make sure it works. You got to make sure it solves the problem. The client's happy. It's not out the door in six months, like you said. I think that's key. Yeah, yeah. And the customers are, they want to help, but they respect and value your honesty and transparency. And if you can deliver on something, the customer is okay understanding if not, but when, right? So right. it's about building a good cybersecurity culture and startup culture to understand the customers first. We're here to help. And it doesn't matter what the deal size is for the contract size. What matters is, can you actually solve the customer's problem? And if true, then your company's going to grow by itself. Yeah, I totally agree. So one question I had for you, like thoughts around this. I've seen other people talk about it on Twitter and it's like an idea that people are throwing around. So obviously cloud has had this incredible success for obvious reasons and become superfluous. Do you think there's a you know scenario 
in the near future, in the next couple of years, where very large organizations will want to repatriate back to more on-premises when there's cost savings. Like you look at, you know, Dropbox is the example, you know, you can get at a scale like that, it's 20 to 30% on billions of dollars of savings is a lot of money. So do you think that's going to happen? Do you think companies, is the next cycle going to be repatriation to on-premises or own servers? And what is that going to mean for security? Does that change anything? I can tell you, I don't think I have the right answer to that. But what I do know is, is velocity, right? How do you get velocity? And that is what, other than cost, which is a, a very big plus for the cloud, you know, the cloud gives you velocity. And once you have a team trained on AWS and, and you look at the skills growing and you bring in DevOps that are being touching it for 10, you know, five, 10 years now, and they can go very, very fast, is about velocity to go to market. So if you look at enterprises, what they're trying to do is to obtain their consumer within their industry. In order to obtain that consumer, you need to build really good cloud-native mobile applications or regular applications because you want to win in your industry. So if you look at it from the business side, regardless of the infrastructure side, that velocity empowering the cloud. And I think that we've gone so far that I, I just don't see that happening. Regardless of the savings, what about if you continue to have that velocity when you're market and then the savings doesn't matter anymore? So I think the cloud is one speed, two security, and then three cost. I think cost is the last thing you should look at it because if you do have speed and security, now you can win your market, you can innovate in whatever you're doing. And if you do that securely, you're gonna have confidence. So if you're trying to save money in the cloud, it's great. And there's a lot of cost effectiveness there, but the innovative enterprises are trying to just make sure that speed and security are matched on a one by one. And I think that's going to be the future. I think that's a really good point. I mean, now that they, they've spent years acquiring the talent who can use the cloud and utilize it fully, even if there was a change, it's going to take years to transition. And think about an M&A activity. Large enterprises yeah. buy companies every single day. They come in with all different clouds and different setups. And- <laughs> We are very deep into the game already. That's problematic. You're right. Yeah. Awesome. Fausto, it was amazing talking to you. I really enjoyed the conversation. You can connect with Fausto on LinkedIn. We're going to share his link to his uh, LinkedIn page and also with his company, Burris. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invite, Amir. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.